kind of the simple answer to what entrepreneurs need to do is they need to start building a fantastic team. Just the way I can't go on vacation with Mimi to Europe and expect that if I come back and ignore things, that things aren't going to be a mess unless I have a great team doing a great job. The same thing in your wealth building. If you don't have a great team being run efficiently, then there's no reason you're going to expect that years later you're going to build massive wealth. And I meet entrepreneurs all the time that tell me, gosh, Jim, with the amount of money I've made in the last 10 years, why don't I have more to show for it? And it's because really they don't have a team driving their wealth building forward even when they're not involved. Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. This is one of those episodes that I have been looking forward to selfishly for a long time because every time I get to talk to Mr. Jim Dew, I learn a ton. My eyes are expanded and open to so many things. But also for you, the audience, I think Jim and what they've built and their business and what they do is going to open your eyes to what's possible. And it really doesn't matter what stage you're at. I was talking with Jim before we started recording. And there's there's a guy out there named Dave Ramsey, which I've I've had mixed feelings about some of what Dave teaches. But what I realized is that Dave's teachings are actually really good for the majority of Americans. Um, you know, cut up the credit card. And I'm like, I, I fly all the I'm, I've got so many trips that I've done, because I use my credit card. And what I started realizing is that like, it's not really about, you know, trying to put everybody into a certain box. And Dave Ramsey is actually really good for the majority of Americans. And there's this idea of, you know, work for 35, 40 years and put all your money into a 401k. I hate that idea. And most of my audience does too. But that's a really good idea for many Americans. And then there's this other extreme where we have these, you know, families that are worth 100 million or 500 million or tens of billions of dollars. I've got a mentor personally that has a family office and and I've I've benefited from really understanding what that looks like. But here's what's really cool. Jim Dew plays in this middle ground where on our journey, you get to be with Jim and his team and they help you with all the things um, that kind of get us there. And I'm not going to steal his thunder because we're going to get into all of this, but I'm super excited about the episode. And no matter where you're at on that journey, I think you're going to get value from Jim. So Jim, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome, Mike. And I just want to say for your listeners, because I know you personally, what they see is what they get. I mean, you are just a phenomenal human being and a caring, giving person. So sometimes people listen to podcasts, they don't know what the person's really like. And I would say that you're really that person, that authentic, caring person. And it's really great to be friends with you and to be on your show. Man, thanks. That's uh, that, that means a lot. I really appreciate it. So why don't you just start with like, who is Jim do? Because um, again, I, I don't know. I don't know how many people in my audience actually know your backstory and, and where you came from. So let's start there. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Tucson, Arizona, of all places. And I was raised by very frugal parents. So my mom and dad grew up during the Great Depression. My dad died two years ago, he was 95. And my mom died four years ago, she was 92. So they grew up in that era. Um, and very, very poor. 
my big break for my dad was World War II. So he enlisted, he served in the South Pacific in a combat zone. Obviously he survived or I wouldn't be here, but he got to go to school on the GI Bill because of that. My mom worked, put him through school. And then they found of all places, Tucson, Arizona. So by the time I came along, I'm the youngest of three boys, we had already moved to middle class. But I didn't know that because my parents were so frugal that we lived in a little, I hate to say crappy house in case my brothers hear this, they might say it wasn't that crappy, but it was a little crappy house in Tucson, went to public schools, didn't know anybody who had nice cars, nice houses, nice anything. Uh, so I wanted to make my dad proud. And I tried to be more frugal than my dad, which was pretty much impossible. But one example is I wouldn't let my parents buy me new sneakers in high school. So my sneakers had holes in the sides and my socks would stick out. So probably the kids at school thought I was destitute, but it was that I just wouldn't let my parents buy me stuff. And it would make my mom mad, but my, it would make my dad proud, but I could never be as frugal as my dad. So carry that over into college. I went to some of your listeners uh, might have heard it. They call it the Harvard of the Southwest, Uni University of Arizona. Uh, and I was getting a math degree there. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Went and sat down with a counselor at the U of A. And she said, tell me what you're thinking. And I said, well, I don't care if I ever make money. Uh, I just want to make a difference. And she said, well, magically, I've got an answer for you. It's called be a math teacher. So I became a public school math teacher at Queen Creek High School, which is in the Phoenix area. Did that for five years. And at the end of five years, I realized, you know what? I love the kids, but I don't really like the system. And I still think public education has a lot of issues with it. So I looked for another way I could use numbers and make a difference. And I had a guy I knew who was a financial advisor. And he said, hey, this I use numbers. I help people. So I became a financial advisor. I did that working for a big New York brokerage firm in their uh, Phoenix office. Four years later, guess what I found out? That's a broken system, too. It's really driven by insurance companies, banks, and brokerage firms. And I got very frustrated, went home to my wife, Mimi. You know Mimi. Uh, we've been married for 31 years. And in fact, uh, I'll go ahead and give a plug that one of the thing I'm most proud of in my life is my marriage, above and, and beyond everything else. Uh, so anyway, so I go home to my wife, Mimi, and just so you understand the context, she was born in Korea. Her family came over when she was five years old. Her dad opened a business. And she was the first to read and write English. So she was running the family business when she was like eight years old. So I go home to that woman and I complain about how the system's broken. And guess what she said? Start your own business. You know, that's like what you do when you don't like the system. So I was like, honey, I said, banks, brokerage firms, and insurance companies. And so she was like, I don't know how you do it, but that's, that's your answer. So in 1999, we started our own company 24 years ago, decided we were going to work with entrepreneurs like us. And then, and this is where it really kind of plays into the conversation today, I learned that billionaires create this thing called a family office to do all their wealth planning. So I thought, I wonder what that is. So I started asking around. By chance, I got introduced to the grandson of a New York billionaire. We connected. We hit it off. He said, I don't know that I'm going to get you in front of my grandfather, but it sounds like you want to learn more about the family office. And I said, no, no, no. I want to learn about the family office. So he said, if you're willing to fly back to New York, I'll get you a meeting with the CEO. I flew out there. We had breakfast, turned into a three-hour breakfast. He invited me to, to show me what they did and how they did it. And I remember on the flight home, I had all these notes, and I just thought to myself, you know, that's not just the best structure for a billionaire. That's the best structure for any entrepreneur. But there's one problem. You need something like $400 million before you can build and run one because they're super expensive to build and run. Uh, so I thought, well, I wonder, because Mimi and I, you know, don't have $400 million. I thought, well, I wonder if we could first create it for ourselves because I love that structure, that concept. And then maybe if that works, we can roll it out to our clients. And so that became kind of our, our passion and our mission to develop 
what we call virtual family offices to serve entrepreneurs who have successful businesses, but don't have the hundreds of millions of dollars to create and run their own. I'm I'm curious, and I want to I want to kind of dissect this. There's like a million ways we could go. I mean, we could even talk about wine because I, I I know you like wine, but um, I don't think that's valuable for the audience. Um, okay, so let's talk about your structure. But I'm also really curious. I want to kind of bridge the gap because a lot of my audience are business owners that are looking for more financial freedom. What I think they're really looking for is more time freedom, most of them, but I think they kind of equate that to if I had more money, um, I would have more time, which isn't always the case. But what I love about your model too, is many times um, you can create more of that too. So I would love to bridge the gap um, between what you currently do and the Dave Ramsey model. And like, what are some of the things that we get overwhelmed by the gaps, the things that you guys solve? I just want to get right to it because I think, I think my audience is really going to love what you do. Well, thanks, Mike. And really, it comes down to this, especially as an entrepreneur, you have way more complexity than let's say someone who's going to work a job for 35 years, like you said, and slowly put money in their 401k, and then they're going to retire and get their social security and, and money out of their 401k. That's a whole, that's so much simpler than the entrepreneur who's running a business and gets pulled in all these different directions. So it's not any dissimilar to the business owner that feels like they're they're stressed out and they have no time and they want to get time freedom from their business, which also, by the way, dramatically increases the value of their business when it's less dependent on them for a potential buyer. So kind of the entrepreneurial journey, the entrepreneur starts out as something we call the eager entrepreneur. And I did that, right? I got all excited in 1999. I'm going to start my company. This is so amazing. Like I control everything. I'm the boss. I do everything, you know, and then Mimi comes in to help me. This is so much fun. And then you transition from the eager entrepreneur with this fantasy that, oh, once we do a million dollars of revenue, oh, anyone doing that, man, they are on easy street. Life is so simple. They're probably jetting around in private jets, you know, and then you hit a million dollars and you realize, you know what, I, I have employees making more money than me. And you also have all the stress and all the liability and your work and weekends. And that's when you move into what I call the overwhelmed operator. And you're kind of in the middle of that business. And to move from overwhelmed operator to the next stage of the entrepreneurial journey, which is a secure shareholder, where you're not an operator, you're more of an owner in the business, right? And that's kind of the transition I'm going to talk about with people's wealth planning. And then the level up above that, where really you do something we call make rich real, is when you become the influential investor. Right. So you kind of go from the eager entrepreneur to the overwhelmed operator to the uh, secure shareholder and then ultimately the influential investor. Right. And then and, and really the, the third stage is owner moving from owner to investor. So the when we think about the entrepreneur in those stages uh, in building wealth, what happens a lot of times is entrepreneurs, their wealth is all in their business. And reinvesting in yourself and your business is the best return on investment you can get anywhere ever. Don't let anyone tell you other than that. However, there's a lot of risk if all of the wealth is in you and your business. So ultimately, you eventually either through an exit or siphoning money out of the business through distributions and, and ways that you're getting paid, you want to build up an amazing portfolio outside your company that can replace the income you get from your company. And that's when you have true financial freedom and that your business and working in your business is optional. So anyway, to make those transitions, you have to build a great team. So the same thing when I'm getting out of the operations of my company, right? I have to have a C-suite team right now. Our 
business. We have an incredible director of operations, a managing partner, you know, people so that I'm not in the weeds. Uh, but I have to create this great team within my company so that I'm not, you know, checking to see if there's toner in the copier at a really basic level, but on a more advanced level, making sure that I'm not in charge of managing everyone and, and doing all those things that we do as we're growing our business. The same thing's true in your wealth plan, because what happens is over your lifetime as an entrepreneur, you pick up an accountant, an attorney, an insurance agent, uh, a banker, you get these different professionals. And if you picture those like spokes on a wheel, I call that the financial flat tire, because usually they're not all A players. They're not talking to each other. But the worst part is the entrepreneur is in the middle managing that team, whether they know it or not, when they don't have the time, and the expertise to speak all the languages of tax, legal, insurance, and investment. So sometimes I like to ask entrepreneurs, who's the annoying one in your family? And if you don't know who it is, guess what? It's you. And if I said, who's the one in the middle of your wheel of advisors helping you with all this wealth planning in the business and in your personal life? Often, if you don't know who it is, it's you and it probably shouldn't be you. So ultimately, you want to move toward the functional wealth wheel. And that's where you have amazing professionals as spokes on that wheel. But you've got a firm or someone in the middle as the hub managing those professionals, holding them accountable, making sure they're talking, making sure you're getting the best outcomes. And then you, if you picture that wheel analogy, and I have it hanging behind me, you become like the pedal where you can easily move that wheel without being stuck in the middle. So the distinction between the family office structure that a billionaire would have is the billionaire is hiring all those professionals on that wheel as full-time employees for that one billionaire. That's one of the reasons it's super expensive. I mean, the billionaire family I know best, I think they have 47 CPAs in their tax department, right? So very expensive to have full-time employees doing all those things and focusing on the family. And so what we did, our magic to creating the model was every entrepreneur or, already has these professionals. They just don't usually know if they're A players or not. So what we do is we evaluate that team. We keep everyone who's good. If they're all good, we'll keep them all. But then we're going to manage that team, hold them accountable, get them to communicate and get their results. So kind of the simple answer to what entrepreneurs need to do is they need to start building a fantastic team. Just the way I can't go on vacation with Mimi to Europe and expect that if I come back and ignore things, that things aren't going to be a mess unless I have a great team doing a great job. The same thing in your wealth building. If you don't have a great team being run, efficiently, then there's no reason you're going to expect that years later, you're going to build massive wealth. And I meet entrepreneurs all the time that tell me, gosh, Jim, with the amount of money I've made in the last 10 years, why don't I have more to show for? And it's because really, they don't have a team driving their wealth building forward, even when they're not involved. Just like my team, if I'm on vacation, this company should drive forward and I should come back and go, wow, we made money while I was gone. And if that's not happening, then I probably don't have the right team. This is going to continue to happen, but I want to go like 18 directions right now. So, but I want, I want to kind of touch on, cause I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, my journey over the years, life insurance, regular insurance, wealth planning, syndications, passive investments, like all the things. And as an entrepreneur, the trust planning, like all of it as an entrepreneur at every step of the way, like I remember feeling, and I still, I mean, I, I still feel this in certain areas. I remember feeling like, yes, I know that's important. Yes, I need that. I don't have the time for it right now. And even if I did, okay, so let's just take life insurance. So I need life insurance. Well, even if I get to the point where I feel like, okay, I'm comfortable with understanding life insurance. Now there's 37 different people that are trying to sell me life insurance. And this is what I loved about just sitting down and, and, and talking with you and watching you, um, you know, work with other people. And I know people that work with you. 
um, you kind of you jump in the middle of all of that. That's really part of your model, right? And you you gave me some props in the beginning about you know who you see here is who I am. It I want to mirror that back to you. And one of the things that I love too about you, when I heard you say this, I was like, wow, that's brilliant. Because unlike the Wall Street cartel, you're not making like layers and layers and layers of fees on all of your, you know, people that so when you connect me with life insurance, or an accounting firm or whatever, it's because you vetted them and not because you're making money off of them. So why don't you touch on all of that? Because I think that's the breakdown point. As an entrepreneur, even if I believe what you're saying, and I know that I need it, it's so overwhelming that we usually just don't get it done. Yeah, it's a great point. And it's so true. Because really, we talk about the three main areas of protect, manage, and grow. And protect can be things like asset protection, which can be personal and business insurance, all the way up to advanced entity design. And by the way, I see entity designs that are way too complicated for a certain level of entrepreneur, creates all this complexity and management issues and costs that someone sold them a, you know, a bill of goods on. Or I see way too simple based on where the entrepreneur is as far as entity structure and complexity, right? So there's those conversations. And the problem is when you're working with someone that wants you to do something really complex, and that's how they're rewarded, then they often, they direct you that way. Uh, so there's those three main categories and everything from, like you said, wealth transfer planning, which is making sure your, your kids and grandkids aren't ruined by money, but have opportunities, uh, making sure your operating agreements are structured correctly so that they can't be pierced if you get sued and stuff like that. Uh, also investing, like how do you invest in things like real estate and private equity and venture capital and stuff that the billionaires invest in, but most or many entrepreneurs either don't have access because they deal with a traditional financial advisor or they're getting pitched by friends or by other people that are getting making money if they invest in this private equity deal or this venture capital deal or, or this syndicated real estate deal. So the, it gets really complex and even in tax planning. So in tax planning, you've got the accountants who are usually tax reporters more than anything. They're tax historians. They put everything in the right spaces. They file your documents, hopefully on time. Hopefully they tell you what you need to pay an estimated. But very few accountants are looking forward, looking at the P&Ls in July and saying, what in the tax code applies to your specific situation so we can save you the most legally in taxes? Uh, they're just churning out the returns. And then you've got these tax strategists or coaches who are pushing certain strategies that sometimes can be very aggressive and risky because they get paid if the entrepreneur uses those strategies. So I guess there's so many areas, and you mentioned life insurance, right? So here's the thing that billionaires do, and this is the lesson, and then I'll tell you how that applies uh, and how you can think about that. Billionaires do all of those things. Let's take life insurance, for example. Billionaires buy life insurance. But the one thing a billionaire never does, they never buy life insurance or anything else without someone who represents them, who knows those products as well as the person selling them, but doesn't get paid or any reward, whether the billionaire buys the product or not, and solely gets paid by the billionaire and solely represents the billionaire. So when we think about this family office structure, typically I get asked like, who would build and run one of these for me? So it's typically a firm in wealth planning, but a firm with three distinct characteristics. And this is what knocks out you know, most of the firms that purport to, to do these kinds of services. So the first is you want, and we call this the linchpin partner. You want the linchpin partner to specialize and work with entrepreneurs like you. Because most wealth planning firms work with anybody who has money. And there's a difference between someone who retired with $2 million in their 401k 
uh, versus someone who inherited their money versus an entrepreneur who has a business and all these different entities and things going on. Second, you need a firm with experience. It's just like I remember years ago talking to a professor at Arizona State University who specialized in the healthcare space. And I was about to have a, a shoulder surgery for an injury. And I asked him, I said, how do you pick the best surgeon? And he said, the most important and maybe the only thing to consider, but definitely the most important is how many of that particular surgery has that particular doctor done? Period, end of story. The doctor that's done 10,000 of those versus the doctor that's done 100 of those will always be better, always. I don't care how talented the doctor that's done 100 uh, is, the one that's done 10,000 will always be better. And so I thought that's pretty powerful. And the same thing here, you want a firm with experience that's been building these for a long time so that they don't make the mistakes that, that less experienced firms might make. And then the third thing, and this is really gets to the root of what you're talking about, is a fiduciary standard of care, which is a fancy legal term that means that that firm has to put your interests ahead of their own. But this is where it gets tricky. There's a lot of people that are fiduciaries that get paid in a multitude of ways because a fiduciary can still get paid hidden commissions, referral fees, revenue sharing, all kinds of things. They just have to disclose it in a big document that nobody reads. So I know for our firm, when Mimi and I were building this, we kept asking ourselves, like, what would we do for ourselves as entrepreneurs? How would we build it for ourselves? So we said, okay, we would want the, the people we dealt with only to represent us and not get paid in any way we can't see. And so that's, I think, the key is we only get paid by the entrepreneur. We only have a responsibility to the entrepreneur, to nobody else. And the problem when people are getting paid in different ways is it's easy to say it doesn't matter but it does matter. So on life insurance, for example, what we require anyone who's buying life insurance, and life insurance is one of those things where sometimes it applies, sometimes it doesn't. There's this whole thing in the entrepreneurial space where there's these marketing strategies that are often comparing buying life insurance to owning a bank. By the way, Mimi and I started a bank, uh, gosh, 18 years ago, and we're major shareholders for a while. And I sat on the board for a number of years. And I can tell you, Owning life insurance and owning a bank are not the same thing, but it's a clever marketing strategy to sell more life insurance. And by the way, I'm not beating up. Life insurance sometimes can make a lot of sense for strategies about tax-free income in the future and all those kinds of things. However, what we always require when someone's buying life insurance, when it makes sense, because it doesn't always make sense, and it shouldn't be a majority of your money going to one thing ever, uh, we require that commissions be disclosed and negotiated. Among other things that we require that I learned from billionaire families. And when I talk to entrepreneurs who bought big life insurance policies, and I ask them simply, like, how did that person get paid? They usually can't tell me. I think they made a commission. You know how much the commission was? I have no idea. That's a problem because those are major incentives that really influence that person helping you. So it's fine to meet someone who's got a clever marketing strategy and knows more about that product than you know. But the danger is don't buy those things without representation. I'm not a car guy, right? I have a nice car, but I'm not a car guy. And when I go into a dealership or something like that, if I'm going to buy a car, I better bring someone else with me who knows the cars and the tricks and the undercoating they charge for and the tinted windows for 800 bucks and all that nonsense. I don't know that stuff. But if I brought someone with me who knew that car and used to own a dealership and knows that better than the people selling it to them, I'm going to get a better deal, period, end of story. So that's the whole concept is having someone representing you. And it, it doesn't have to be commissions. It could be an attorney getting you to do structures that are not necessary that cost a lot of money and you know sometimes it's a very well-intentioned attorney who's so smart they want to build all this stuff but the entrepreneur is like i just want to get 
you know, 90% of the protection without all this management stuff and cost and brain damage. I got to worry about the stuff in the future. And so that's why having representation in all these areas is really important. Yeah, so good. And, you know, on that note, on the attorneys too, the thing that I realized is um, when you say good intention, and I believe that, gen, you know, generally people have good intentions, I think, but I've talked to five attorneys that gave me five different answers on on the same, you know, real question at the end of the day. And I don't think it's, you know, a lot of times that they're, you know, have any malice or misintent. I think some of it's just like education and training and and skill set. And that's one of the things, again, that just gets so overwhelming sometimes as an entrepreneur, because I like what you said earlier. Don't let anybody tell you, <laughs> you know, that you're going to get a better ROI somewhere else. And I, when I watch my evolution, I remember as a young entrepreneur building my plumbing and heating company, I was talking to life insurance agents, and they were always trying to get me to buy whole life. And the only thing that I cared about, I have a mentor, he's, he's probably 80 something now. But I remember him telling me, and, and he sold life insurance back in the day, he wasn't a life insurance salesman when he told me this. But he said, you need to make sure that you have enough life insurance that if anything happens to you, Kara doesn't have to marry the first yahoo that comes along because that son of, this is exactly how he said it, that son of a bitch is going to be raising your kids. <laughs> and so I believed in life insurance, but also like I had this guy that was a friend of mine that was always trying to sell me this really expensive whole life policy. And I just went with term because I just needed, and I'm not doing this as advice, but I just looked at it at that point in time, I could spend $800 a month for the amount of life insurance I needed then, or I could spend literally like $73 a month. And I'm like sitting here looking that $750 that I invested in whole life every month, I could buy another truck in my business. And that's just how simple it was in my brain at that point in time. So I love how you brought it back to like, not letting people convince you that you need to start, you know, spreading your money and wealth in other places until a certain point. And I even went full circle with this where I kind of bought into the trap. I sold my business along the way I had bought five mobile home parks, we had a bunch of single families, commercial buildings. And then I started raising capital for mobile home parks. And the natural, like talking points are, you know, passive investments, and hey, you need to diversify and you need to. And there's some truth to that. But what I realized when I look backwards, and I actually put a post out about this a while back about the flywheel, hmm. the thing that the thing that really like, got me to where I was at, was that business that was spinning off cash. And then I just started buying real estate because it was a tax benefit. And, and I was thinking about it long term, like when I'm 65, I'll have these houses. And that's how I was thinking about it back then. But then when you come full circle, it becomes like this conversation around passive investing. And all of a sudden, like I woke up and I realized, you know, the most successful people, they continue to pour that money and wealth back into their business until they get to a point where they need to diversify and they put a team like do wealth in place that helps them analyze and vet. But the natural tendency is to go all in on like trying to vet your own deals and figure this own stuff out. When in reality, we should stay focused on our core genius, keep making that money. Oh, I'm preaching to the choir, you take over. Yeah, no, it's it's such a great point. And, you know, there's so many things I like you just said, like 18 di different directions I could go. And one thing, because I've seen so many entrepreneurs in, in their journey, one thing that happens with entrepreneurs is they get distracted and they get distracted away from what makes them rich. And I have known a lot of very rich entrepreneurs who got rich because they owned a small business. Uh, but I haven't known any entrepreneurs that got rich because they bought Bitcoin at the right price or because they, you know, they got in some special private equity deal uh, with something that went public. 
I haven't met those entrepreneurs. I know they're out there, but they're very rare. And so there was an interview with Jeff Bezos a couple of years ago, and he was asked a question, what do you get asked all the time? And he said, I get asked, what's going to change in the next 10 years? And he said, but the question I never get asked, but I should get asked is what's not going to change in the next 10 years. Mm. Because it said, it's much easier to build a business on what's not going to change in the next 10 years than what's going to change. Because no one really knows for sure what's going to change in the next 10 years. And I thought about that. And there's actually uh, statistics and studies that show that about 95% of Americans who are seriously wealthy, and my definition is more than $20 million of liquid net worth, 95% of them owned a small business. So in 10 years, that's something I think is not going to change. In 10 years, I don't think 95% of the people who are seriously wealthy in America will be like, oh, you know, I bought this. I bought these these crypto coins at the right time, or I got in this special deal that ended up, you know, being a rocket ship. And I don't think that's what it's going to be. I'm pretty darn sure that's not going to change. And you get rich in America by owning a small business. Now there's other people like LeBron James, athletes, uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, but most people get wealthy by owning a small business. That's your return. That's what you should focus on. And then the stuff outside of that, because you do want to build a portfolio outside of your company over time, so you de-risk yourself. But that's got to be stuff that you have other people helping you vet, and that should be more tried and true. I see entrepreneurs chasing shiny objects. They're trying to find something that sounds like their business because that's what excites them. They want to have something that goes from they put in 100 grand and they get 10 million back. But by doing that, they chase deals that are highly risky and, and have a high chance of failing. And I see entrepreneurs that do a lot of private investments on their own, and they lose so much of their money by doing that. If they just focused on their business, they would be much better. So one of our, our a good friend of mine, he and his three business partners, uh, I've been working with them, all of them for 25 years. And when I met him, their company was doing about 20 million, 20 million of revenue. The year before they sold to Blackstone, they sold to Blackstone in 2021, they did 2 billion of revenue, right? So I was on that journey, seeing them do roll-ups and working with them, helping them with all that stuff. And I was on uh, their private jet with uh, the oldest partner, last year. And we're just chatting. And he said, Hey, do you remember when I first started working with you? And I said, Yeah, I kind of do. And he said, remember, I gave you that stack of stuff and asked you to help me. And it was like tax returns and legal documents and insurance policies and all this stuff. Right. Um, and he said, remember all that stuff? I said, I need help with this stuff. And I said, Yeah. And he said, because you and your team helped me with all of that, I was able to focus on the business. And by focusing on the business, that's how we created 1.6 billion in value you know, over the last 25 years. And, and that's what I would tell other entrepreneurs, not that you're going to sell your company for a billion dollars necessarily, but focus on that, put your energy in that don't get distracted, because your buddy's into crypto, right? And you still need to invest in those areas. And you still need to be aware of where your money's going. I don't want you to be reckless or uh, be an ostrich and ignore and avoid where your money's going outside the business. That's important. But focus on the business that should be your primary goal is to build that business and make that thing great. And, and I know for me, by far, the biggest wealth generator in my life has been my business. You know, we sold to our employees last year. We still own, Mimi and I, 49% of the future value, and we run and control the board of directors. And so I'm going to be doing this for a long, long time. So if any clients are in this, you know, it's not I'm disappearing or, or we, we don't control the company. Uh, but, you know, that was a $31 million exit. And as a teacher making 20000 a year, it would have taken me more than 1,500 years to create that value. So anyway, my point is, Focus on your business. That's where you're going to get rich. Uh, don't 
ignore the stuff and just let money go to anyone who's managing it. Uh, you want to be aware of what's happening so you're not getting you know ripped off or investing in Ponzi schemes or any of that stuff. Uh, but it shouldn't be a major focus of your time and efforts unless you want to be an expert investor. Uh, but most, most entrepreneurs don't have the time and effort to, you know, to do that. You know, I was, Karen and I were having a conversation with um, a couple a while back and he was, he was saying that, so the guy's successful. He's had a business for like 20, 30 years. Um, he has a plane. They have houses all over the place. Um, very, very consistent, profitable business. And he said to me, you know, Mike, the reason why Kara, or the reason why we joined your and Kara's community and really started listening, he said, I, I really just want, I'm looking for financial freedom. Hmm. And I, I, and I know this guy like pretty well. And I sat, I mean, I haven't seen his P&L or, or his balance sheet or anything, but I'm pretty sure the guy has financial freedom. I think what he was actually trying to say is like, I'm looking for that time freedom. And I'm looking to get away from those things that, you know, I'm bogged down by within the business and without the business. Um, all the things that I really love that, that you talk about and help get your hands around. And I think this is so common. Even when you were saying like, you know, people think they want to be a professional investor. I don't think that's the case. I think people think I want to take a portion of what I make and invest it in something different so that when I wake up 10 years from now, I can, I don't have to go to work if I don't want to. I don't think most of us actually even want to retire. I think we just, we don't want to be forced to work 70 hours a week. Am I, am I off base there? No, uh, you're spot on on that. And it's kind of interesting you mentioned, you know, your friend who wants financial freedom because there's, there's a couple of things. And I think it's really more time freedom. Um, you know, I mean, Charlie Munger said, like, I didn't set out to get rich. I set out to get my time back. Uh, it's one of his famous quotes. I might have not done it exactly right, but in, you get the idea. And what I see a lot of times is really, and I'll just talk about two things. One is we all have baggage from our upbringing and from our life experiences. And we have to understand that baggage. And so you can imagine the family I came from, I never wanted to spend a thing. And then Mimi came from a family. So my dad used to say, this is America. It's hard to make money in America. So when you make money, you got to save it, protect it. Uh, and Mimi's dad, on the other hand, is an immigrant. He said, this is America. It's easy to make money in America. So when you make money, you should enjoy it and spend it. And so we kind of came together when I met her. I, I like to say I was broke and she was negative broke because she had all this credit card debt. She would buy gifts for friends. I'm like, you're broke. You can't put more money on your credit card. But Together, we had to navigate like that baggage to where she got me. We'd be in the same little house in Gilbert, Arizona, if it was up to me. But I'm, I'm happy. I love the house we live in. Uh, we're about to build a new home, which is going to be amazing. None of that would have happened without her. On the other hand, she gives me this ability. Every December, we sit down and I ask her the same question. How much more are we going to save and invest next year than we did this year? And so we just keep ratcheting that number up. And I would tell entrepreneurs on the call, even if it's $50 a month, Get in the habit of putting money outside your business because there will come a time when having that, even if it's in cash, whether it's invested or in cash, whatever, having that money is going to give you some security, some comfort, or the ability to take those funds and put them back in the business to get you through a tough time. Um, so that's the first thing is I would tell everyone on the call, 
make sure you spend some real time alone in the quiet space of journaling or whatever, thinking about what's my money story? What's the baggage I carry with me? And it can be good or bad. My parents taught me saving. That was very good. But they also taught, you know, I, when my dad died, I thought my dad never, I never once in my life saw him splurge for himself. Never. Not an upgrade, not a special pair of shoes, not a nice watch, not a, a special meal or a special bottle of wine. I never saw it. That's a sad life, right? Not to enjoy the, the memories and the experiences that money can create. So there is baggage uh, both ways, good and bad baggage. But identifying that, especially if you're married, so you can communicate and figure that stuff out is really important. The next thing is, as you get wealthier, time becomes more important. And I know, I'll just give you an example. During COVID, uh, I've worked out. Mimi's, she taught group fit classes for like 30 years. So I've always, you know, been into working out, just try to keep up with my, my lovely wife. Uh, well, anyway, COVID hits, the gyms are closed. I'm going crazy. There's only so much bands and riding the bikes at home. And there was a, a personal trainer I know, and he said, hey, Jim, I'll get you in a gym, just you and me, to work out, but you got to pay me. And I remember thinking, why am I going to pay this guy? I know how to work out in a gym, but I had no choice, so I paid him. Two weeks later, I said to myself, these are the best workouts I've had in like 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I realized is that my workouts were taking space in my brain. Every Sunday, I would sit down and think about, okay, what am I doing for the week? Or I'd show up at the gym and like, okay, what am I doing in the gym today? And freeing that space in my mind and getting better workouts was a huge thing. So finding out when you're ready to exchange money for time, if you can buy your time back, you know, now we have someone that does the grocery shopping and the pool and the landscaping and, and the personal training and all that stuff. Uh, and the same thing with your wealth management. At some point, you're going to want to outsource that so you're not taking up brain space and, and worrying about this stuff. So those are two things I would think about is, you know, have a good understanding and then really have a compelling focus. Because when you're working so hard in a business, and you and I have done this, we were talking even before the call, uh, and you're grinding, it's one thing to say, I want to help people, I want to make a lot of money, but you want to be specific and have a compelling focus, something that pulls you forward during those hard times uh, where you're not constantly pushing, pushing, pushing. And so for me, when I was young, my mom was so instrumental in my life. I said, one day, I'm going to help my mom. I don't know how, but one day I'm going to get back to my mom. And when I was a teacher, I couldn't do it. But fast forward years later, my mom's in her 80s. Mimi and I go over to her little town home, and it's not clean. Toilets aren't clean, floors not clean. And I'm like, my mom always keeps a clean house. So I realized she's physically not able to clean the house. So Mimi and I kind of talked it over and we said, let's just buy our cleaning service every two weeks. I sat down with my mom. I didn't think it was a big deal because to us, it wasn't a big deal. I said, mom, we're going to buy you a cleaning service every two weeks. My mom was not a crier. She cried. I was so touched that how much it moved her, that little gesture, but I didn't have to think about it. My brothers didn't come up with the idea. I didn't have to think about it because financially it was no burden to us to do that. And then every two weeks, my mom would call me and I'd pick up and say, hey, mom, what's up? And she'd say, it's Christmas today. I go, what do you mean, mom? What do you mean it's Christmas? The cleaning people are here. So I'm just giving you an example. You want something that pulls you forward, whether it's ways you want to serve uh, charities or take care of people you love or um, things you want to do for your great-great-grandchildren, something bigger than you. Because really, life is about believing in things bigger than you because that's what pulls you forward. And that's also what creates meaning and fulfillment. So good, man. Every I've heard you tell that story about your mom like three, maybe four times. And it, every time it's just so powerful because like 
really, if you just narrow it down to like what we're really all after at the end of the day, I mean, that that sums it up. And I think sometimes as entrepreneurs, you know, we just get lost in the noise of all of it. But that's what I love about, you know, just your your just your whole model. And the one thing that I'll say too, like listening, I've seen you do multiple presentations. I read your book, which is called Beyond a Million. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Beyond a Million. Um, and I think I told you this, like your book might be one of the most like, well thought out, like capturing, maybe it was just because where I was at, I don't know. But like, when you look at everything that you've built and the ecosystem and the way you've done it, it's obvious that a lot of time and thought has gone into this. But even more importantly, I think it's, you know, you, you touch on this all the time, but it's because you and Mimi have looked at it and said, you know, what did we need? What did, what did we want? I mean, just even the fact I've thought about this like five times since we've been on the interview today, a, you were a teacher. Like you were a school teacher 20 years ago or whatever it is. And look at what you've built today. 30. Yeah. 30. Um, and just like, did you say 50? How many years would it take for you to make that exit? 1,500. Making 20,000 years as a teacher. Now I know teachers make more than 20,000 today, but um, that gives you an idea of, of how long it would have taken. And here's the other thing is, you know, like a dream of Mimi's, you know, having immigrated to this country and they were on food stamps in the beginning. And we were never that way. Like I pretended I was poor, but the reality is I was not poor. I was middle class and just with frugal parents. Uh, but Mimi, one of her big dreams, because she had to work three jobs and, and put herself through college. Uh, her dream was to create a scholarship for at-risk kids. And just this year, just a month ago, uh, we created a scholarship. And it was like this huge thing for her. And the cool thing was, it wasn't like we had to go, oh, gosh, you know, okay, let's skip all the vacations next year, you know, which, which is why, you know, I had a client who saved a charity anonymously. And, and, you know, a lot of people do anonymous things, but then they really want people to know they did it. I mean, he, only I and... Uh, um, I know, and the executive director uh, of the charity knows, but no one, no one really knows. But he saved this charity that's going to serve probably 500 kids a year for the next 20 years because he saved it with a single stroke of a check. And I was sitting down with him, and I'm talking to him, and, and it relates to me and Mimi starting the scholarship. I said to him, I said, uh, when he told me this, I said, oh, I'm so touched like that you would do this. And the ripple effect of all these kids you're helping, and they'll have kids, and those kids will have kids. And I was just like kind of going on. And he said to me, and he's he he's not a a, a guy who you know uh, BSs people. He said it's not that big a deal. And I said, are you serious? This is a huge deal. And he goes, well, let me just say what I mean. I'm not trying to be false humility or anything else. But he said, yes, I know this is one of the most meaningful things that I will ever remember I could do in my life. But let me tell you how I think about it too. My kids are not going to be, you know, destitute because of this. I'm not going to drive a different car. I'm not going to live in a different house. I'm not going to take a different vacation. I'm not going to eat different meals or drink different wine. My life doesn't change at all. And I can do this. It makes me feel great. So I really, it's not, it's not a sacrifice. And in a way, I say, gosh, you know what? He's kind of right. And I feel like that with the scholarship we just created. And that's the great thing about entrepreneurs that I didn't know when I was young and didn't know anyone who has money. I thought you sat in the tip of the plane because you knew someone or you were anointed or you're royalty. I didn't know you could just pay for it. That was never an option. Uh, and I also didn't think that rich, being rich had utility. I thought rich people must be arrogant, rich people driving around in their fancy things. You know, I don't need that. And what I learned is the wealthier the person, the more they can do for the world. Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Sarah Blakely can do way more for the world than I can do. 
because they have so much more wealth than I have. So that allows you to express yourself in a way that's so powerful and change so many lives. And so that's the thing about getting wealthy. And that's why I want to make sure that anyone on the call, if you want to get wealthy, that's awesome. It's not a bad thing to be rich. I used to think it was a bad thing to be rich. It's not only a good thing, it's a great thing if you're a good person. Now, if you're a terrible person, please be as poor as you can be because people with money who are terrible people, they cause lots of problems. But if you're a good person, getting as rich as possible is I'm all for it because you're going to do so much good for your family, the people you love and the world that it's going to have ripple effects for generations to come. Yeah, so good. Um, as we kind of like work on landing this plane here, I want to, I know you've got a gift for the audience that is amazing at the end, but I want to, I want to say something. I've been thinking a lot, you know, there's a lot of conversation about like what we identify as, like I identify as this, or I identify as that. And I've actually thought about this for years. Like, I want you to touch on, you know, who your, who your ideal client is. And I know you've mentioned in an email to me, you're kind of restructuring. Yeah. But, but within that too, I want to throw this out there for the audience to think about, even if you don't fit in gyms, because I think sometimes we disqualify ourselves um, automatically because I might not be there yet. But when we talk about who we identify as, I was having this conversation with a, a mutual friend of ours a while back. And I was talking about like, if you want to identify as something, identify as like an accredited investor, if you're not accredited yet, or identify as a business owner, if you want to become a business owner, there's better things to identify as, as a lot of people are trying to identify as today. And the thing that I want to say to the audience as you share this is like, even if you don't fit Jim's mold yet, or ideal person or net worth or whatever, whatever the requirements are, go get your hand on Jim's book, and make sure you download the gift and all of that. Because if I had my hand on your book 10 years ago, it would have changed the way that I was thinking before I actually needed it. Um, so I wanted to just kind of plant that um, as you share with us, like, you know, who's an ideal candidate for you to work for and what does that look like or work with? Yeah, no problem. So really we have, uh, for our virtual family office services, which is kind of the white glove, we're doing everything. We're your time energy shield. So we're interacting, running all the professionals, doing all that kind of stuff. So that's, you know, our, our, virtual family office service that we've been doing for, you know, a long, long time. And for that uh, net income of a million dollars. So that's not after taxes, but your income before taxes from salary, you pay yourself from business distributions, that kind of stuff. So, or, or you can think of EBITDA, you know, profit in your company, a million bucks. That's kind of where it makes sense to, to talk to us. Uh, and then we have, you know, some entrepreneurs that are, you know, very large, some doing a couple hundred million in revenue and, and stuff like that. And so we have different levels for that. Uh, the new service that we're uh, creating that we're actually launching in February, and we have 20 spots available for February um, that I think we're going to fill very easily. But that one is for entrepreneurs that are grossing a million. So they might be netting half a million or 300,000. Um, and for that, it's a 24-month lockstep program. It's one-on-one. -on -one, so you have an advisor call twice a month. So it's not like uh, an online course or anything like that. So you're getting two calls a month, one-on-one. -on -one. There are uh, implementation guides, videos, everything else. And every month, there's a specific objective to get accomplished. So the goal is in 24 months, we'll help you create and build your own virtual family office. And that one's for gross of a million. So probably netting 300,000, 250. 
uh, and above. Uh, and then that one, we're going to like side by side work with you to create that. The other ones is like we're doing everything and building it, running it for you. Uh, and that's really the distinction. But owner, founder, entrepreneurs who are at those levels would be uh, potential clients for us. I love it. Um, I could ask you like 50 different questions, but I'm just going to toss it back to you because you know your business, you know what entrepreneurs are dealing with, you know the environment we're in. What else have we not covered? We've got like nine minutes left. Um, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, I, I'd probably say there's so much to talk about, but I'd probably say maybe we should talk about tax planning because here we are, fourth quarter, and this is kind of the golden window for tax planning for 2023. Uh, everyone got their 2022 tax return done, you know, this last week, even with extensions. So you kind of know what last year looked like. But too, yeah, too often entrepreneurs wait until the tax year is closed to start thinking about these things, right? And then they sit down with the CPA. And this is what I hate about when accountants do this. Uh, if they say, hey, congratulations. So this was an accountant I had years ago that got fired. Uh, I sat down with them, you know, Mimi and I did. It was uh, February or March. And he said, hey, congratulations on last year. And I, I was like, I don't like the way this is sounding, you know, and he he's smiling. And I said, uh, why? Why are you congratulating us? And he said, oh, because you had a great year. And I was like, OK, just tell me what you know, like, what are you alluding to? And he said, well, you're going to owe some taxes. Uh, and I, I never like to hear that news from the accountant, right? That you owe taxes. You were very successful. It's like, I don't want to hear that. Um, so at any rate, uh, tax planning is really important. And there's multiple things you can do, especially as a business owner, to save in taxes. So simple things uh, like HSAs, where you can put, you know, if you have a high deductible plan, you qualify, you can put uh, 3850 into HSA if you're single or 7850 sorry, 7750 if you're married filing jointly, you get a tax deduction. But the magic with an HSA is save the receipts. Don't pay out of the HSA for medical and dental and that kind of stuff pay out of your own pocket, save the receipts, put those in a digital lockbox. So here's an example. So if you're putting away in an HSA, you're married filing jointly, you put 7,750 away every year for 20 years, you're earning a 10% rate of return, you'll have $440,000 into that account in 20 years at a 10% rate of return. That's tax-free money you can take out anytime you want by matching it up with receipts from 20 years ago. So build that up. That's kind of a magic thing. Hiring your kids. So you can pay your kid up to the standard deduction, which is $13,850. And that's the 0% tax bracket. You're probably in a higher tax bracket. Uh, so that would save you in a 40% bracket, $5,540 from paying that one kid. Now it's gotta be real work. You can't have a five-year-old running a forklift, right? Uh, you wanna document it. Uh, all those things are important with any of these tax strategies. Very simple. Uh, there's another simple one, and that's called the Augusta Rule. And that really is Section 288, subsection G of the code, where you can rent your house to anybody for up to 14 days a year, tax-free income to you. But as a business owner, you can rent your home to your business or your vacation home to your business for up to 14 days a year, tax-deductible to the business, tax-free income to you. Documentation is important. You got to document what are you charging for daily rate? What was the business purpose? Uh, you want to really have all those things lined up. You also want to issue a 1099. Uh, those smart things to make sure you're documenting these. But just as an example, let's say the appropriate rate for your house is $4,000 a day. You do that for 14 days. That's $56,000 at a 40% tax bracket. You just put $22,400 into your pocket. And so what I have for the listeners today is 
the digital, we created this digital pack over all the years we've done this and all the CPAs that we've worked with. Uh, and it's got a tracking sheet. It's got ways you can find out what the appropriate uh, rental rate should be for your house for the day. It's got a, a spreadsheet that helps you keep track of the diff different business purposes. It talks to you about, you know, the 1099 and how to do that. So I wanted to make the digital pack available to the listeners and I can put that on if we have a chat or. Yeah, you can drop it in the chat. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. It's dowealth.com forward slash freedom. So we did it specifically for you guys. Oh, Do awesome. Wealth.com, two W's in the middle, D-E-W-W-E-A-L-T-H.com forward slash freedom there. And I just threw it in the chat. So, I mean, those are some real basic things, stuff that you can do to put money in your pocket. And then there's advanced stuff. And so you can do things like private insurance companies. Uh, and these allow a business owner to both get coverages they can't always get from commercial policies to protect their business. And this also allows them to redirect premiums they pay to a commercial uh, company to their own private insurance company so that if they don't have claims, they get to reap the underwriting profits. So in Arizona, we have State Farm Stadium. It's where the Arizona Cardinals lose their football games every Sunday. Uh, and the reason why it's called State Farm Stadium is because State Farm has a lot of underwriting profits. So it's a way to get those underwriting profits. There's a tax deduction for the premium paid. And there's when, when you close down your private insurance company in the future, it's a capital gains treatment. So it's an arbitrage play as well. Advanced, make sure you have your accountant and, and experts involved if you look at that, but that's a more advanced. Another thing that was in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is the Qualified Business Income Deduction, also called uh, 199 Cap A in the tax code. So a lot of people are missing uh, opportunities on this. So the first thing is you look at your 1040, you should for 2022, but also uh, when you're looking at 2023, if you look at line 13 on the first page of the 1040, it actually says Qualified Business Income. So if you look at the qualified business income deduction on line 13, if there's no number there and you had profits in your business, you want to ask your accountant, why is there no QBI deduction? If there is a number there, compare that to your business profits and see, is that 20% of your business profits? If it's less than that, same thing. You want to ask your accountant, why am I not getting the full QBI deduction? And there could be good reasons for it, right? Uh, the other thing you should know is if you're getting the QBI deduction, then your tax bracket within your business is lower than your tax bracket personally by about 20%. So if you're in a 37% federal rate, which is the highest federal rate, 20% of that is about 7%. So you're 7% higher outside your company than you are in. So a lot of entrepreneurs will give to charities and they give from their business. Sometimes they even call it a marketing or an advertising cost, which is totally fine. But the problem is if you made a $200,000 charitable deduction from your business and you're getting that QBI versus taking the distribution and making the $200,000 deduction, you're losing out on $14,000 that would go in your pocket just by understanding how that works. The accountant's probably not going to tell you that. Um, so make sure that you're paying attention to 199 cap A. The other thing is you're phased out at single taxpayer making $232,100, married finally and jointly uh, if you make more than $464,200, and you're a SSTB, a specified service and or trade business, you're out of luck. But if you're not an SSTB, which is a business, business that relies on your, your talents and your likeness, so think professional athlete, attorney, accountant, those would be SSTBs. If you're not an SSTB and you're above those thresholds, then it becomes either a 50% of W-2 wages test or a 2.5% unadjusted basis plus 25% of W-2 wages test. And I'll just take the 50% W-2 wages. 
So let's say you made $2 million in your business and you got a QBI deduction uh, based on 50% of your W-2 wages. So you had $300,000 of W-2 wages, your compensation, you were an S-corp, your compensation's included in that, 50% of that is 150,000. 40% of 150,000, if you're in the 40% income tax bracket, is $60,000. So you just had, uh, you just uh, saved uh, $60,000 in taxes. But if you knew that, and you could bonus yourself 271,000, so your total payroll became 571,300 plus 271. Now, 50% of W-2 wages is 285,000. 40% of that is 154,000, right? If I'm doing the math right. Uh, so you actually saved, right, in 60,000, right. So the difference is you make an extra $54,000, or not make, but you have an extra $54,000 in your pocket by understanding that. The actual magic is, if you take your qualified business income without W-2 wages, 28.57% of that, 28.57% of that is the magic number to maximize your QBI deduction. Now you have to meet reasonable uh, comp and all that kind of stuff. So at this time of year, consider bonusing yourself as an S-Corp owner employee to maximize your QBI deduction. Okay, so there's that. Um, other stuff that we can talk about, we can talk about charitable land donations. We can talk about the uh, R&D tax credit. There's some updates there you got to be concerned about. We could talk about uh, all kinds of numerous things that you can do you know, to save in taxes. But there's just some simple and some more complex ones off the top of my head. But make sure you use the digital pack and see if that'll help you save some money this year. Yeah, and we'll put that in the show notes, but it's uh, dowealth.com forward slash freedom. And I'm excited about that. That's actually the only reason I had you on so I could get the, the digital package. Like, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, um, yeah, man, I appreciate your time as always. Um, it's always just such an honor. I've learned something like literally every time I was sitting in a business um, summit with you and and you took us through like things we were taking in. and I, I thought I was taking advantage of a lot and I still had like so many things that you know I've got a good CPA that I've been with for like eight years and I'm like I didn't know that and I didn't know that and so anyway can't thank you enough for everything that you do your contribution um, to the world everything that you and Mimi are are doing is just awesome and it's just been amazing to get to know you a little bit um, personally too you're just a good human so thank you for everything my pleasure, Mike, and uh, continued success. And and again, uh, the feeling is mutual. I, I've just been blessed and grateful to to get to know you and, you know, continued friendship and continued success. Yeah, thank you. If you found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.